Howdy, and Happy New Year. I'm Zen Hess, and this is Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. It's been two years since a mob of Trump supporters marched to the Capitol and acted as insurrectionists, attempting to usurp the will of voters and to force the outcome they'd hoped for. Among that crowd were pastors who believed God had chosen Donald Trump to save America, Christians who carried crosses and Christian flags, even the QAnon shaman, after removing his weird horned cap in an act of apparent reverence, prayed in Jesus' name from the Senate chamber floor. All of this has rightly drawn attention to the rise and to the threat of Christian nationalism. In February of 2022, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty released a report on the connection between Christian nationalism and the January 6th riot. You can find a link to that report in the episode description. The report offers definitions of Christian nationalism and offers a series of assessments about how Christian nationalism contributed to the January 6th riot in the weeks leading up to it and at the event itself. It concludes with some ways forward for resisting Christian nationalism. Fortunately, more and more resources are coming out to help Christians think well about Christian nationalism and why it is a threat. Some of those resources are listed in the episode description. This episode, however, contains a lecture from our departmental archives. This is a lecture given in 2018 by Amanda Tyler, the director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which released the report mentioned a moment ago. In the lecture, Amanda discusses the importance of religious liberty and expresses concern about the rising threat of Christian nationalism. Time has proven that her concern was well-founded, but she also offers a word of hope one that is worth hearing once again. So, here is Amanda Tyler's lecture from 2018, sponsored by the Baylor Religion Department. introduction. Thank you to all of you for joining me on this rainy afternoon uh, and so appreciate uh, the Department of Religion and the J.M. Dawson Institute for Church-State Studies for sponsoring this lecture. You know, a Baylor and the BJC have a lot of connections. Two of my five predecessors spent a lot of time at Baylor and in Waco. Uh, the very first uh, director of the Baptist Joint Committee, J.M. Dawson, for whom the Institute is named, uh, was the pastor of First Baptist Waco for 35 years. And the third executive director of the BJC, James Wood, spent about, uh, I think, 25 years here at Baylor. Uh, and that connection goes to the present day. Right now, 30% of the staff of the BJC are Baylor grads, so thank you for sending us some of your best. I admittedly am not in that 30%. Uh, I was born about 100 miles down I-35, and I thought if I wore green today, you might accept me into your family, at least for the day. Um, I do have to admit, I still root for my hometown football team, but it's not Saturday yet. Uh, My Longhorn fandom started early. 
Growing up in Austin, that's the only professional sports team we have to root for. Um, then our big rival was not the Oklahoma Sooners, though. It was the Texas A&M Aggies. And at my public high school, we would wear our team's colors, burnt orange for the Longhorns, maroon for the Aggies, and we'd root throughout the season, building up to that big game on Thanksgiving night. And we hoped, and truthfully, we might have even prayed that our team would win, um, because we didn't want to endure the taunting at school the next Monday. Well, looking back, I can see that this early experience of college sports fandom was really my introduction to identity politics. Longhorns were good, Aggies were bad. Longhorns were smart and Aggies were dumb. Longhorns were sophisticated and Aggies were kind of backward. And in my childish mind, we really were very different. And I had a thousand and one silly jokes to confirm that suspicion. But a little broader lens and perspective has shown me that we were really all children growing up in Central Texas, and we had a lot more in common than we had to separate us. It turns out my experience is really pretty universal. There's a new book out uh, called Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. And in it, Professor Liliana Mason begins the book by describing what's been come to be known in social psychology as the robber's cave experiment. In the summer of 1954, 22 fifth grade boys from Oklahoma City were recruited and taken to two campsites in Robber's Cave State Park. The boys were really all pretty similar, white, Protestant, middle class, and none of them knew each other before the experiment. Before the boys arrived, the researchers had divided them into two teams, the Rattlers and the Eagles. And the first week, the teams were divided from each other, and each team developed its own group identity. In the second week, the researchers told each other of the other's existence, and the boys on each side immediately began referring to the others as outsiders, intruders, and those boys at the other end of the camp. Things went downhill quickly when the teams were introduced to each other. Name-calling, stereotyping, even vandalism and violence, until the staff decided to stop interaction altogether to avoid possible injury. <clears throat> Mason writes, by the end of the second week, 22 highly similar boys who had only met two weeks before had formed two nearly warring tribes with only the gentle nudge of isolation and competition to encourage them. In her book, Professor Mason argues that in the United States today, our partisan labels have become our identity. Like the Longhorns and Aggies in my childhood, or the Rattlers and the Eagles at Robbers Cave, Democrats and Republicans are not just rival teams. They are warring tribes. Now, those party labels have become mega identities. If I tell you how I vote, which I'm not, some marketer can also tell you what neighborhood I live in, what kind of car I drive, where I get my news, what television shows I watch, and even where I buy my groceries. I find her thesis depressing. 
but also strikingly accurate in many cases. Though I'm Texan by birth, I now call Washington, D.C. home. And people often ask me what it's like to live in Washington these days. I know this isn't probably empirically true, but it feels like we've never been divided as much as we are right now. Whether you supported or opposed Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation, and the BJC took no official position, to be clear, I think most agree that the long-term impact of this nomination fight might be disastrous on our institutions, including the credibility of the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Supreme Court. But I didn't come today with a doomsday message, but with a message of hope. After all, my lecture title is Unity in Our Differences, How Commitment to Religious Liberty for All Can Be a Way Forward. And I know we don't have to accept this current reality as the final word in the matter. I want to first turn to a scripture that I believe speaks to our current times. It's from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The churches at Galatia were also struggling with tribalism. Paul is so angry with them that he either forgets or forgoes his customary words of thanksgiving. A rival version of the faith has come into their midst, a different gospel, and they are dividing themselves into teams. Their teams are divided over whether they've been circumcised or not. Paul argues that faith has made these distinctions and differences meaningless. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. There is no longer Democrat or Republican. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't deny the differences, but just says that we are all equally children of God. Or as New Testament scholar Mark Allen Powell says, Paul's opponents claim that the good news is that Gentiles can become part of the favored group, whereas Paul claims that the good news is that there is no favored group. There's another teaching from Jesus that's instructive. According to the Gospel writers, it's the last week of Jesus' life, and two rival Jewish groups are joining together to try to entrap him. The Pharisees, you likely remember, were religious purists, Jewish patriots who despised Roman rule. And the Herodians supported the descendants of Herod and worked with the Romans. So these two opposing camps have joined forces to try to trap Jesus, who has started to threaten them both. And the topic is paying taxes, which was probably as unpopular then as it is now. So after some false flattery, they ask him this question that they're sure is going to trick, trick him up. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And it's really a very cunning trap because if he says yes, he's gonna ruin his credibility with the Jewish people. And if he says no, the Romans could charge him with treason. But Jesus, aware of their malice, according to Matthew's gospel, had the perfect answer, and he made them give it to him. He asked someone to bring him a coin, maybe like this one. And he asked, whose head is this? And they said, the emperor. 
And then he says, of course, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed and went away. But of course, his answer is more than an answer to the question of a tax obligation. It gets to the heart of the tension we find ourselves in today. We're citizens of two kingdoms, an earthly one ruled by government and God's kingdom, which claims a higher citizenship. And we have to work out our allegiances to both and determine how, what we're going to render to which one. An institutional church beholden to an institutional state does not comport with this two-kingdom philosophy. So it is in Jesus's words about paying taxes that we find a theological basis for the separation of church and state. And in talking about this topic, I find it helpful to talk about the separation of the institutional church from the institutional state. It's not, and it never has been, a divorcement from religious life, but rather an, an acknowledgement that religious denominations and other institutions like this one have a distinct purpose from that of government organizations, and that neither should attempt to do the job of the other. The group that I lead, the BJC, supports the separation of church and state as the best way to ensure religious freedom for all people, not just for Baptists, but also Buddhists, not just Methodists, but also Muslims, not just Jews, but also Jehovah's Witnesses, not just Episcopalians and Anglicans, but also agnostics and atheists. And in doing so, we are heirs of a long line of Baptist forebears. From the beginning of the Baptist movement more than 400 years ago, Baptists have fought for religious liberty, not just for ourselves, but for believers of any faith or no faith at all. And some of this was born from our experiences. When Baptists were the other in England, forced to flee from persecution almost immediately to Holland, it also comes from our theology an understanding of soul freedom, the idea that each person has been uniquely created as a child of God, and that no person, not even the king, should attempt to interfere with an individual's relationship with God. You are listening to Currents and Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. You are hearing a lecture that was given in 2018 by Amanda Tyler, the director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Thomas Helwes, one of the co-founders of the Baptist movement, sent to King James I an autographed copy of his A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity. It's known as the first defense of universal religious freedom in the English language. And one of its jewels is this uh, quote, which I've updated just a little bit because it is 400 years old. For people's religion to God is between God and themselves. 
the king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and person. Let them be heretics, Muslims, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. This is made evident to our Lord the King by the scriptures. Well, King James did not like this message very much, and Helwes was arrested and later died in prison when he was just 40 years old. Baptists who fled Europe for the colonies to escape religious persecution did not fare much better when they got here. Roger Williams was expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony for preaching about soul freedom. He eventually made his way to a place that he called Providence. Roger Williams was a lifelong seeker, but he spent some time, we think maybe at least six months, as a Baptist. And that was an important part of his life because he founded the first Baptist church in America. He also wrote about his view of religious freedom in the bloody tenet of persecution for cause of conscience. It is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Muslim, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted in all nations and countries. And they are only to be fought with that sword which is only in soul matters able to conquer, with the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. Well, more than a century after Roger Williams wrote this, a Virginia preacher named John Leland carried on this Baptist tradition of standing up for religious freedom for all. He wrote in 1791, the same year the First Amendment was ratified, let every person speak freely without fear, Maintain the principles that he believes. Worship according to his own faith, either one God, three gods, no God, or 20 gods, and let government protect him in doing so. I love that quote because a Baptist preacher standing up for the right to believe in 20 gods, that's not today. That was more than 200 years ago. Well, these quotes from Helwes, Williams, and Leland exemplify how Baptists for centuries have insisted that religious liberty is not just for me, but also for thee. We also have known that when your religious liberty is threatened or denied, that none of us has full freedom. And that's why we've insisted that government not involve itself in matters of religion. Well, fortunately for us as Americans, we don't live in the Roman Empire or the 17th century England or even in most of colonial America. And instead, we find ourselves in a constitutional democracy. Our Caesar is a representative government formed by we the people. The wise but imperfect men who set up our government made clear in its founding document that there would be no favored group among religions. In other words, that people of all faiths can be equally American. It's set out right there in Article 6 of the Constitution. There shall be no religious tests for public office. The right to represent American citizens would not be based on one's religion or lack thereof. 
And that's a really good thing because Americans are remarkably diverse when it comes to religion. The Pew Research Center put out its U.S. Religious Landscape Study in 2014. They found that if you were to take a random sample of 100 Americans, about 71 of them would claim some Christian faith. Six would belong to another religion, and 23 would claim no religious identity at all. Of the 71 Christians, you'd find 46 Protestants, 21 Catholics, one Mormon, one Orthodox Christian, one Jehovah's Witness, and one metaphysical Christian. And there's remarkable diversity among those 46 Protestants. You would find 15 Baptists in that group, but the Pew researchers identified 16 different categories of Baptists that one could associate herself with. Well, our founders were not nearly as diverse as we are today, but they nevertheless formed a government that would remain neutral in matters of religion. They shored up this principle of religious non-favoritism in the Bill of Rights, specifically the first 16 words of the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Colonial Baptist preachers like John Leland of Virginia and Isaac Backus of Massachusetts lobbied James Madison and John Adams for religious freedom. And we at the BJC advocate that government remains neutral in faith matters, neither advancing any one religion over another or promoting religion over irreligion. Of course, this does not and never has meant that the public square is stripped of religion or religious people. For centuries, people inspired by their faith have boldly advocated for their causes of conscience, and some have even been called to run for public office. The BJC is an education and advocacy organization. We lobby on Capitol Hill. Just last week, I testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee's Constitution Subcommittee, which is chaired by Texas Senator Ted Cruz. We file friend of the court briefs at the U.S. Supreme Court and in lower courts around the country. And we encourage individuals and churches to get involved in the civic life of our country and to defend religious liberty for all people. So we certainly believe that there's an important role for religious people of all faiths to play a role in our politics and our political system, just as there's an important role for people who claim no faith at all. But something very different, and I believe very troubling, is happening now that threatens this long history of government neutrality in matters of religion. And it also threatens our unity as Americans. It's the rise of Christian nationalism. That is the false idea that this country was founded as a Christian nation and that therefore Christianity should be privileged or favored by the government. Christian nationalism tends to conflate American patriotism with a religious observance. It confuses God and Caesar. The myth that the United States was founded as a Christian nation has been around for decades, and the BJC has been here to debunk that bad history. It's true that most of our founders identified as Christian, 
but that they set up a government neutral with regard to religion. The Constitution never mentions Christianity, and the only mention of religion is to ban religious tests for office. If they indeed intended the U.S. to be a Christian nation, then they failed from the outset by allowing anyone, regardless of religion, to serve. Let me give you a recent example of how Christian nationalism is showing up in public life today and is being furthered by both religious and political leaders. In August, the White House held an event in the state dining room for 100 of the president's most ardent supporters in the evangelical community. Prior administrations have hosted events for religious groups, but this one was different. The people invited certainly did not reflect the rich diversity of American religious life. They didn't even reflect the rich diversity of American Protestant religious life. Some of the leaders who attended described it as a state dinner. These are lavish affairs that are usually reserved for visiting heads of state. Now, this label might have just been convenient shorthand to reflect the multi-course dinner served on fine china, but I think it's an appropriate label. An outside observer could be forgiven for making the assumption that Christianity, or at least the particular strands represented in that room, is being treated as an official state religion. It seems obvious that at a minimum, these leaders are being granted special access to power. State dinner might be the accurate term because the religious leaders present confused their offerings. And I'm not just being figurative. They literally rendered God's word to the president at the conclusion of the event. Prosperity gospel evangelist Paula White presented the president with a Bible signed by more than 100 faith leaders with the inscription, history will regard the greatness that you have brought for generations. This special access and privileged position does not come for free. At the dinner, the president implored the pastors to use their pulpits to campaign for Republican candidates. His request is not terribly surprising given that the president has promised to totally destroy the Johnson Amendment, the tax law that protects tax-exempt organizations from being used for partisan campaigning. I support this law that says that our 501c3 organizations will be campaign-free zones, and so do the majority of Americans, regardless of political party. So do the vast majority of churchgoers and pastors who think that candidate endorsements made from the pulpit are a bad idea. Why? Well, there are many reasons that I've heard from leaders of both secular and religious organizations, including the worry that they would be distracted from their core missions to serve their communities. They aren't PACs, and they don't want to be. They also know that their independence from government helps maintain their integrity, and preserves their reputation from being debased by partisan politics. But the number one reason I've heard is they fear that their institutions will be divided by how people vote. Can you imagine the impact on our houses of worship if campaign speeches from pastors and pulpits became the norm? We'd have First Baptist Church of the Democrats and First Baptist Church of the Republicans all around the country. 
Not to mention the further splintering that could occur every primary season based on what candidates the church endorsed. Well, fortunately, this is not the reality that we're living in. Support for current law has helped keep it on the books. More than 100 religious denominations and organizations on the national, regional, and state level have joined together in support of current law. Meanwhile, not a single denominational group has come out actively working to get rid of the law. And more than 4,500 faith leaders have defended a nonpartisan nonprofit sector on the online platform faith-voices.org. And I'm hopeful that we will continue to ward off this challenge. I also find hope in cries that we not accept our current tribalism as the last word, and that we work to find unity as Americans. In the now infamous op-ed published by the New York Times last month, the anonymous senior official in the Trump administration closes with this plea. The real difference will be made by everyday citizens rising above politics, reaching across the aisle, and resolving to shed the labels in favor of a single one, Americans. It's a compelling plea, but what does it say to us? What can we render as Americans, for many of us as Christian Americans, to our government, to our polity, to respond to this call for unity? What if, instead of autographing Bibles, we brought a Christian witness that erases favoritism among warring tribes and replaces it with equality as children of God? What if we took seriously Paul's words to the warring Galatians and tried to put aside all labels, maybe especially our partisan labels, and fostered community with our fellow Americans? What if, if as Baptist historian Bill Leonard urges, we stopped confusing religious liberty with religious privilege, and we spoke out loudly against a creeping Christian nationalism that threatens our national experiment of freedom for a religiously diverse people. What if we might just fulfill the hopes in our original national motto, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. And for those of us who are Christ followers, we might just fulfill Paul's words. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. There is no longer Democrat or Republican. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I have hope in this message and also in you, our next generation of leaders. I'm the mother of a three-year-old, so in addition to court cases, legislative bills, and federal regulations, my reading list also includes a steady diet of Mo Willems, Sandra Boynton, and Dr. Seuss. And one of my son's favorite books right now is The Lorax. Maybe you've read it or you remember it. It's a classic as a cautionary tale against environmental exploitation and unchecked consumerism. It's a warning of the perils of taking for granted our most precious resources. In the book, the resource is the truffula tree, 
whose colorful truffulatuffs are just too enticing and are used by the enterprising capitalist named the Wunzler to make something he calls a thneed. It's a shirt, it's a sock, it's a glove, it's a hat. It's something everyone, everyone, everyone needs, and it can be yours for just $3.98. But maybe you remember where this is going. The Wunzler exploits the trees until he chops down the very last tree. And the impact on the community is immediate. The brown barbaloots have no truffula fruits to eat and have to find another place to live. And all the squammy swans can't sing because of the smog and must fly away. The hummingfish's pond is polluted and they go off searching for water that isn't so smeary. And the brightly colored pages of the book quickly go monotone as environmental devastation sets in and the land is a post-apocalyptic gray. I read the Lorax, of course, through my BJC lenses, and so I see how it relates to religious freedom. Bear with me and see if you see it too. I view religious freedom as one of our most precious commodities as Americans. In our country, it's abundant, and it supports the life of our pluralistic society. But it can also be easily taken for granted. Religious freedom is one of those things that we tend to only notice when it's being threatened or denied. Religious liberty is beautiful and enticing, like those colorful truffula tufts. And the temptation to use it for political gain can be too great for some to overcome. So we see it being taken and knitted into thneeds repackaged and expendable and ultimately useless campaigns to serve narrow political interests. It is something that everyone, everyone, everyone needs. But increasingly, it's being marketed as something that is meant for only some people in some circumstances. We think of our constitutional freedoms as limitless resources, secured for Americans for our entire history present and future. But don't the current times call into question just how lasting some of these freedoms might be? Our constitutional democracy, which is chartered in a document that starts, we the people, is only as good as we the people demand it to be. In the Lorax, all that's left at the end of the Wunzler's exploitation is a stump that has a single word on it unless. And the reader doesn't know what that means until we see the hero of the story, a young person, and then, aha, we get it. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. We won't be able to secure our freedom for generations to come unless you learn about it. Spread the seed and tell others about it. Water and feed and nurture it. And be sure it isn't used for immediate short-term gain by some that will cost us all in the long run. Unless. So catch. Catch the seed of religious liberty for all and plant it for generations to come. Our country, our United States of America, our unity as Americans depends on it. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Currents in Religion. If you found Amanda Tyler's lecture helpful or insightful or interesting, I'd encourage you to share it with someone who you think might benefit from it too. Also, I want to remind you that there's a list of resources for learning more about Christian nationalism in the episode description. As always, leave a review to let us know how we're doing and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, take care, friends. Thank you.